Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I want to cover uh, two videos that are out there. Um, one is a very recent announcement by Google uh, talking about the latest implementation of their BARD and then it covers some aspects of what they're about to release here in the near future. So we'll get into that. And then we're going to visit a video from, I think it was sometime in early March. Um, there was a sort of a, a, a private TED talk um, with a pair of gentlemen named uh, Tristan Harris and uh, Aza Raskin, where they uh, talked about the AI dilemma. And at the time that they recorded it, ChatGPT4 hadn't really come out yet. Uh, so a lot of it is slightly dated for um, GPT-3. But it, the topics that they jumped into on the darker side of AI are a lot of things that we've certainly considered, not only on the Substack and this podcast, but um, I've had a lot of similar conversations with uh, people and friends of mine on the side about these kinds of things. So I figured it would be a good opportunity to kind of go through some of their points and, and offer some insights and also sometimes a little bit of a counterpoint to to some of the things that I think they're concerned about, rightfully so, but just offering a different angle as to another direction that it could go. So let's start with the um, Google announcement. Oh, and by the way, I'll I'll put the links to both of these videos in the description for the episode so that you can watch these videos for yourself and comment, agree, disagree. I just like the conversation. Um, so Google recently did a little uh, Apple-like announcement for the next, next enhancements for their BARD service. And one of the first couple things that they kind of talked to is how um, they've really pushed the boundaries of it being able to code. Um, so they showed this example where it's doing this like Python coding and it's kind of taking it a step further and not only does it help write code, but it can also go ahead and launch that for you inside of Colab, which is uh, like Google's version of a dynamic document. Like if you're used to like Jupyter Notebooks, similar to that. And then they announced some kind of a partnership with uh, Replit or Replit. Replit. Um, not entirely sure what that is, but I imagine it's another environment that can handle running uh, Python code basically on the web, on the cloud, um, instead of having to have like a local implementation of it running on your server somewhere so that's cool and then they spent the rest of the time kind of showing how they're starting to integrate bard with other aspects of google like um you can have it compose an email and then go ahead and launch it into gmail or uh they they created a couple documents and spreadsheets and went and launched them in um sheets and, and docs or whatever um so this is interesting because we're we're kind of getting into the thing that i knew was going to happen next and most people predicted which is the moment at which people had a really good and easy time communicating with um, these GPT type programs was immediately going to be the moment that every single large corporation was going to burn a lot of cash and go very, very fast at trying to implement this kind of technology in every facet of the software that they control as features. And I think this is sort of like wave one of it because the search engines um, and little assistants um, that's sort of the most obvious use case for that um, but even even in my day job I've been starting to warn people that there's a fast approaching time where all of our 
software that we use for everything from customer service to sales to marketing to finance, basically all these ERP systems, they are 100% going to start bolting on these extra services where some kind of an AI or language model is going to be a liaison between a customer and you or even internally intra-department AIs that can quickly translate documents into different languages or speak inventory so that you can just ask it how many widgets you have that you can send out today. Um, there's going to be a myriad of solutions that come out that's add-ons, but that's coming super quick. Um, uh, they talked about Bard plus tools, aka extensions. They kind of showed some interesting things with the whole multimodal thing, which for the uninitiated means that it can deal in not just text, but also images, audio, right? So they showed this example where, um, uh, you know, somebody asks a pic, it's like, you know, what should I wear to a formal a dinner event or something? And it can return a bunch of text for the kinds of things that you should be looking for. And then it can actually show some individual images. And then they showed an example of how that can go the other direction where using Google Lens, um, you can upload an image to it and you can have it um, see it, air quotes, and kind of respond appropriately to different questions. And I think the example they used is some picture, candid picture of a pair of dogs. And the lady says, uh, you know, give me some some memes about these two dogs. And uh, I think one of the ones I remember was it's like, you know, when you're trying to figure out who the good boy is. And so it's going to be the next best the best thing is because, you know, as human beings, right, uh, pictures are worth a thousand words. Um, so being able to have these language modelers not just describe things verbosely, but interpret and um, work seamlessly between images, it's going to be interesting. Um, one area that I get concerned about there is that two-factor authentication that we work with now, um, that are going to break. Um, pretty much the moment that you let GPT uh, and or or Dolly or any of these, you know, mid-journey Google Lens, as soon as you let AI uh, see pictures, um, you automatically break pretty much every I'm not a bot captcha uh, thing in the universe. Because that thing's going to be better than humans at defeating those captcha things. So... Even those rolling ones where it's like, you know, keep clicking on fire hydrants until they're all gone. Eh, it's going to be doing those like no problem. Look at split. Um, there's also going to be, unfortunately, a lot of scams that arise with that. Right. So um, there's some websites that one of the ways that they uh, ensure to you that you've landed on the correct page is they show you some kind of a picture like a strawberry. And then you know that if you go to the website and that strawberry is there, that you've got a legit website and it's not like a man in the middle attack where somebody spoofed the website. Um, I'm sure that's, there's going to be some kind of a weird defeat thing where some AI virus that can look over your shoulder while you're navigating websites will be able to detect the fact that you were on your banking site and detect the fact that it used a strawberry and it's going to radio back somewhere to say, if you're going to hack this dude, show him a picture of a strawberry with the page. Um, so that's, you know, once we get to the visual side of it, stuff gets stuff gets really, really, really weird. Um, show me on a map. That was another pretty cool feature. You know, I think I've even used it a couple times now where... 
Um, I did a little exercise where I try to get GPT to basically act like a day trippers site um, where I gave it sort of a route for a vacation that I wanted to plan. And I, and I tried to iterate on it to see if it could figure out points of interest within five miles of the main destination. And of course, it's able to do that. But now it would be really cool. You can search for things in an area and then go ahead and have it like dump them out to a map for you so that you can get around to them very quickly. Um, so this is a, a step beyond what you would get from a normal Google map search for restaurants near me or I need gas. Um, it's going to really take that to the next level. When you put all of these things together, right, the multimodal thing where it can see images and recommend images and you can put on, put things on maps and uh, the Google Docs thing where they show how this person was able to turn something into a table and then add an additional column and all this other stuff. It really starts to remind me of that sort of minority report level of analysis that Tom Cruise's character is doing when he's standing in front of those big uh, crystal screens, right? And he's moving things around and he's telling it to enhance shit and zooming in on this and putting, you know, you know, clusters of stuff into a bucket and rearranging things. I think we're going to get pretty close. I think there's going to be some really clever UX folks out there that are going to get their hands on this type of technology and introduce some kind of an AI model um, that can work as a human interface device for the person controlling it and we're going to see some pretty cool enhancements i think on the operating system side that's going to get you to that minority report level of making work look really exciting um and i think the last thing that they announced there was a partnership with adobe to basically create their own dolly slash mid journey uh so adobe firefly apparently is going to be their their go-to there I imagine it's going to do a pretty good job as far as generating images just like all the other ones, but I think where Adobe might add a little bit of an edge is with their uh, extensive history in software like Photoshop and, and Premiere Pro and After Effects, right? So you're going to get this, I'm sure they're going to have a pretty cool enhancement deal that's going to let you go in and... Uh, add a bunch of filters and make a bunch of modifications to the image dynamically uh, beyond what you have to kind of do now in mid-journey, which is specify lighting and specify aspect ratio and stuff. I'm sure that's going to be just bells and whistles that you click on and off to make that happen. Um, yep. Um, I think the last piece too that was not in the Google presentation because it just freaking got announced like the other day, if not today, uh, Ars Technica um announced or at least google through them or some other channels announced that you know the ai race heats up google announces palm which is spelled p capital p little a capital l capital m palm 2 its answer to gpt4 palm 2 can code translate and reason air quotes in ways that best that best gpt4 says google um this is interesting because i think when we were talking um, GPT-4 versus um, Bard right in, in the in the last posting, we had to kind of work around the fact that um, Bard, from a search engine perspective, was kind of fine-tuned to be very quick and snappy and responsive, but not very deep um, and contemplative like GPT-4 is. So apparently Google's trying to work on both paths there, and they're going to be putting out something um that's going to be as they claim it better at reasoning 
uh, multilingual translations, so on and so forth. Um, we'll see if we can get our hands on it. Um, I'll definitely go sign up for it, and we'll see if we could uh, maybe re rerun our little bake-off test and ask it some of the other questions from some of our later podcasts and pose it some, some ethics questions and see how good it does. Um, I have no doubt that the, the this code thing is going to be... Um, pretty much turnkey i mean the moment they announced that you can start to launch the stuff directly inside of the collab and shit like that you're like one step away all you need is like a gitlab um, interface and you can pretty much do all your software development uh, probably just like talking to a computer and having it check in code and debug and all that other stuff so um that part's going to go pretty 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 quick and so if you're in a career that deals with coding of things like web pages or or python scripting you probably should look at how that is going to enhance you at being better at designing better processes and better ux experiences and figure out how having a copilot that can make the code that much faster for you um that's the way i would look at it um musicians and artists of the day well into the era of VCRs and CD-ROMs were super, super concerned with what happens to their intellectual property once we were able to record or once we were able to take a picture of something and then have a printer uh, recreated in perfect color and depth. Did paintings go away? No. Did music go away? No. Did live music go away? Hell no. Video did kill the radio star as far as there being a different set of things that you have to do to participate in those new mediums to be relevant or to survive. Absolutely. But the industry didn't go away. The concept didn't go away. And I would argue that if, if nothing else, what ended up happening was many of us just developed a, a, a broader appreciation for the old methods. Right. When, when when we look at movies nowadays that um, that have CGI in them, I, I'm I remember when CGI was coming into its own, and a lot of the sort of conventional special effects people were up in arms, um, arguing that this was going to be terrible for the movie industry and so on and so forth. And um, certainly, I'm sure it shook things up in that industry, but. Nowadays, as much as people marvel at the awe of your avatar type of, of programs, I, I really do think that they still appreciate what they still try to do in things like Jurassic Park or uh, Walking Dead, right? And when producers hit the, the, the stage and they were able to recreate drums and guitars and synths and everything else uh, without having to learn how to play an instrument, did it shake things up? Absolutely. There's a lot of upset people. There's a lot of upset musicians that spent 30 years how to, uh, learning how to play the piano um, or play the drums only to have some kid with fast fingers come along and tap his way into recreating songs. And all it's really done is it's created new genres of music, but it hasn't really made anything obsolete. Uh, and in fact, in some of the circles that I run in, 
there's the throwback. There's a, there's a revitalization to using ancient instruments to try to bring that back, right? This whole concept of amplified history is a real thing when it comes to old folk, folk music. Human beings have this way of being super worried about the latest and greatest technology, even though it's literally what we're hardwired to do. We're hardwired to advance. But the real humanity to me is that we never really let the old stuff die. We've had cars for years now, and we still love a good Kentucky Derby. We still love horse right, horseback riding. We still have ranches everywhere. Still exist. Just not to the same degree. AI driving cars are going to be scooting us about, but people still like driving. People, there's still a, a desire for people to put their hands on, on on a wheel and race around a track and see who has the better human reactions with that. Um, so the only really diff- the only real difference that I see when it comes to AI is that AI, at the moment at which it becomes sort of um, sentient, um, it 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 will have its own opinion about how things should go. And that's the only part that, what are you going to do? Um, what can you do? All right, enough about Google. Let's look at this uh, AI dilemma. Uh, this was a f- fantastic talk. Um, Tristan Harris and Aza Raskin, I believe I'm saying his name correctly. They kind of tag team this presentation to a small private audience. I don't know if it's disclosed uh, who, who exactly they're talking to, but... It was a pretty good presentation. Um, I believe that Tristan was featured on that uh, The Social Dilemma. And then both he and Aza work for this Center for Humane Technology. They kind of take us down this journey uh, where the main sort of recurring theme is that new tech equals new responsibilities that we never even thought of. And it's sort of a black mirror view on some of the things that could go horribly wrong, uh, but then also sort of a call to... We can perhaps have the opportunity to kind of set things straight or slow down. Um, So my notes are in no particular order. I kind of just watched the presentation and then took notes on specific pieces. So we're kind of, we'll kind of follow along with as a commentary here. So first question they ask is, are are we releasing this AI technology responsibly, right? And the argument that they're posing is probably not. I think that there's plenty of examples that I've even seen personally uh, people are absolutely starting to use this for scams, especially on the deepfake side where they're starting to get the audio bits um, really dialed in. All a scammer needs to do is get some audio of your grandkid or somebody else in your family, and then they can pose a very tailored fake call to you to say, oh my god, grandma, it's your grandson, Robbie, and I'm stuck on the side of the road, and I need to get home, but the taxi needs 50 bucks to do that. Can you wire it to him or... Can you uh, PayPal it to this account? And to the unsuspecting person, it sounds like their kid, and they comply. Another example that I was seeing was um, there's a lot of sort of online training sites uh, where you, people pay subscriptions, and they have access to online training content for a number of topics. And so there's dudes, these like, you know, I pull in $3,000 a month using this one trick. There's all these dudes that are out there now. And the scam is you sign up for one of those websites, then you pick a topic that you don't even, you're not even an expert in, you're not even like a certified anything in, and you create a pretend syllabus or a, or a, or a 
good enough sounding syllabus with ChatGPT, and then you have ChatGPT go through the syllabus one topic at a time and generate all of the rest of the content, and you just keep copying and pasting it out to uh, an overall Word document, um, go and grab some stock footage, uh, maybe even generate a, uh, a few pictures or whatever, and then you upload all that content and you act like it's your training module, like it's your training class. I, I wouldn't even be mad at it, quite frankly, if it was one of those things where a person who is already an expert in an actual field is merely leveraging the software to help them um, create better curriculum content, right? Because um, it is an art form. You can be an expert in something and suck at teaching it, right? So that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, if you're using it to enhance uh, training that you already do, but you know the topic well enough to actually be qualified to teach it, uh, no problems. I have zero problems with that. But these are literally dudes. One guy, he was uploading uh, uh, how to build your own smart car. And I mean, the the logic inside of it was so like nonsensical. It was like, you know, build a frame and then instead of a motor just make battery packs and all this it's like the the most terrible shit but because the syllabus looked legit and it looked like it was a pretty logical approach to how you might build it at the surface level it looked convincing um it looked convincing and he uploaded it, it was like bam there you go and what's what's sad is some of the content that it was generating was just like flat out wrong but he didn't care because you could tell that the name of the game was not to actually provide value it's just to create a whole shit ton of um online courses and you're just basically praying that enough stupid people click on it sign up for it and pay you money for it and because you generated all of it using ai you can't even necessarily get in trouble for it as far as like plagiarism claims or anything like that i, I have to imagine the worst that could happen is Somebody eventually goes, this looks like a lame AI-generated uh, syllabus, and then that one gets demonetized or something like that. But they probably can't even kick you off, right? Unless, uh, you know, I don't know. So, that's bad news, right? The, the low-hanging fruit, the very first thing that most people do when any kind of a new technology comes out is, is they ask the question that every other person considers, at least in their, in their subconscious, which is, how can I make this work for me? And I don't have a problem with it. I only have a problem with it when people act on it in unethical ways. And then they go out and uh, try to make a quick buck, essentially by scamming people or essentially by pretending that they are an authority or know something that they don't actually know anything about. Myself excluded, of course. And with that, I highly suggest that you subscribe and donate. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've been upfront that this is a journey of personal interest and passion. I am not an expert in any of these things. I do have an extensive background in software development, which is why I can speak to some of these things. But as with all things, you shouldn't take my word for it either. Next thing they kind of get into is, uh, uh, well, they, they hit you with the whole new tech, new responsibilities. Um, for instance, in the entire, once social media got to the point where websites can collect every little detail about you, this concept of the right to be forgotten or GDPR, uh, that was something that didn't even really exist until the technology, the internet got to the point where it can record everything about you. 
Um, and these are fair points. That's an excellent point, right? There's a whole slew of aspects of social media. Some of the other examples were like doom scrolling, uh, influencer culture, short attention spans, bots, deep fakes, fake news, um, right? They've kind of got this word salad of all these problems that did not exist until the internet got to a certain critical mass. And, and more specifically, social media got to a certain uh, critical mass. Um, I would say that for people who have managed to navigate the TLDR culture, which is short for too long, didn't read, uh, for people that somehow have managed to make it this far, um, in the internet and not have their attention spans go to complete crap. Um, I think that people that have an open, curious mind and are willing to sift through the BS stuff to get to the good stuff, um, I think we benefited very, very much more than we lost in terms of living in a world where you can finally satisfy your curiosities, learn something new, um, find a how-to video, uh, gain insights into more than just what the news is telling you. It opened up a way wider world for anybody that's 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 savvy enough to navigate it. Um, and I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily take back even the darkest corners of that um, because at the end of the day, anything that advances clarity and openness and interconnectedness eventually outweighs the downsides i think i think maybe um what we could do this time around is just be better about standing up our defense against the dark arts and making that the most invested part of our hogwarts journey um into ai 2.0 then perhaps we gave social media credit for and then all of the sort of dark sides of that took a second to come around well now that we know what those types of behaviors are we know or have a pretty good indication as to how people are going to leverage these and all the horrible ways that you're reading about in the news um like i said before i think we just have to focus more on how we can prop up our personal defenses our mental fortitude our resilience our our, our freaking children um, to protect us against the dangers of it. And so I really believe in a slightly more optimistic view that even as fast as it's going now, there's still a pretty fundamental set of behaviors and questions and protocols that you can put in place for yourself to prevent you from falling prey to probably 90 to 95% of all the, the, the bad stuff that's out there. Because... The better it is at acting like a human, it's almost slightly easier, I would argue, in some regards, because then all of the same kinds of things that you would do to protect yourself against bad people sort of applies, right? At the end of the day, if you people sort of applies, right? At the end of the day, if you care and you're careful, then, and, and you apply a certain amount of discipline... I'm fairly certain you're going to be able to leverage all the good aspects of AI and avoid almost all of the bad shit, at least the stuff that you can control. Nothing in the world can stop uh, AI from being the next thing that ends up like leaking a bunch of credit card information or or hacking your LinkedIn account, right? But those things were happening anyways, right? Uh, hackers have been busting into sites and getting their hands on information they weren't going to supposed to be getting their hands on for decades now. And so I would hope that many of you have adopted 
uh, a slightly different strategy, which is don't put anything out there that you can't explain or that you wouldn't necessarily care if it got hacked other than the inconvenience of having to change some passwords or get another credit card issued, right? So I don't, I don't, I don't think there is such an industry where the moment that you involve human beings, there is sort of the lower dregs of all of the things that it now means are possible, but there's an upper echelon for those that can keep their shit together that is a far enhancement to humanity than what we had before. Okay. One of the sort of like main slash three quarters of the way through uh, comparisons that they draw was uh, this comparison to the nuclear arms race. Um, nuclear arms race was at the country level, right? Um, and they say, you know, man, and we got lucky that that was only contained to like nine different countries and even had the, the means and the wherewithal to do this once we began splitting atoms. 100%. Um, unfortunately, the downside is we live in a world now where, number one, corporations are bigger than nations. Corporations have more say and influence than an entire um, nation would. And um, unlike having to deal with refining <laughs> uh, uranium or plutonium into radioactive materials and having to solve for a million different contingencies and things like that... Um, the cost of doing business inside of discovering AI and platforms is uh, almost nothing. Uh, as long as you have enough computational power, if, as long as you have the right formulas in place, as long as you import the right Python libraries, you too can develop your own AI program. And that is certainly already in a runaway effect that you cannot contain just by signing some kind of a nuclear peace treaty. Um, because certainly, at least in real life, even though there was this, these, these, these ceasefires and, oh my God, are we going too fast? Oh my God, are we going to actually blow up the world? Uh, did they still, <laughs> were they still able to do a lot of underground development and underground um, um, test bombs and advancing that, that technology to its nth degree? Absolutely. Um, one one interesting thing that they brought up was this idea that like slowing down AI in general somehow is this knockoff knockoff effect on slowing down China. I, I disagree with that. Um, not not to bring in a little bit of politics into it, but I think the basis of his argument is this idea that China is not necessarily on the creative side of innovation. That most of what they're good at is sort of copying and tweaking, which I don't disagree with whatsoever. However. What China is also really good at is implanting themselves and embedding themselves into every facet of every other nation. And so all you have to do is take a quick look into the concept of the uh, Thousand Talents program to realize that they're at every university, which a lot of these think tanks and all of these symposiums and a lot of initial companies harvest all of their talent out of, and they're in the middle of all these research programs, they're there. And so... Even if you have this surface level pause on AI uh, advancement um, that that is that is supposedly not happening, if even if even one country is doing it behind the scenes, then guarantee promise you that China's right there with them, looking over their shoulders. Guarantee, guarantee that there's that that and that that knowledge and that information information is being bifurcated by pretty much all nations. So you just have to assume. I I would rather go into the assumption. 
that there's no such thing as pausing. And again, going back to the Harry Potter analogy, I'd rather work on defense against the dark arts. Protecting yourself mentally as a human being and with your own personal technology to ensure that that AI doesn't just come and steamroll you um, out of everything you own or swindle you out of your, your, your future retirement or, or, or trick you into believing that, that it loves you. Um, next thing they kind of talk about was this whole arms race, um, and the fact that it's already kind of underway, right? Um, what I don't agree with that they kind of allude to, and certainly Elon Musk is calling for, right, is this, this idea of calling for a pause. Uh, that's the genie's out of the bottle, right? This is, uh, I'll get into the whole nuclear arms race later, but the moment at which these GPT uh, methodologies were, were released with all of their math and the formula, and you can home grow this stuff yourself if you have enough GPUs, that genie's out of the bottle. You can't, there, there's no such thing as uh, even Congress waving a magic wand and saying, no new AI developments, no new JetGPT releases, no new BARD releases, um, and everybody must comply or face a $65 bajillion fine. Even if that, even if those corporations, even if OpenAI or Google or anybody else or Microsoft tells you to your face and or a press briefing, okay, yep, we agree that things are going too fast or so we're going to slow down, guaranteed there's going to be a skunk works operation or some buried subsidiary in some other country like Switzerland or China that is going to continue working on that stuff at breakneck speed. And what's going to happen is they're going to keep all that stuff under wraps. And then as soon as that window of acceptance moves back into being favorable and they let their foot off the brakes, whoa, hey, magically we were able to develop this entire thing in like uh, 48 hours. That's just how good our developers are. And that's the power of Lambda, right? But that's going to be shit that never stopped developing because they're looking at this horizon now and they have all the lessons learned from the early internet days, all the lessons learned from the early social media days. And it's all about two things. You got to, you got to buy that. You got to buy the intimacy with people and you got to buy the audience. The largest audience wins, right? There's a reason why nobody's really shopping around for is people just kind of want to gravitate towards the one thing that has the most amount of people on it to hold their profile and to share their pictures and moving is cumbersome because you need everybody to move or nobody to move because you don't want to be the only weirdo on platform XYZ that has no friends on it. Um, so guaranteed that all of these Google assistants and Bard and OpenAI, they are all vying for that special place in your heart where that's going to be the AI that you trust. It's There's too much at stake, right? It, you can't. You can't, you can't pause and then assume that nobody else is going to work on this stuff. They're absolutely going to work on it. They're absolutely going to hide that from the public if we tell them to stop. So you have to just err on the side of assuming nobody's going to stop, nobody's going to slow down, and just instead prepare yourself for how you can control an ecosystem where just assume that right around the corner you're going to get perfect deep fakes and 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 bullshit advertisements that are going to know you better than you you know yourself start to fortify your minds now start to fortify your protocols for how you discern fake from reality now um next topic they kind of get into is they, they kind of show this like iceberg sort of a monster 
um, that starts with like a little, it's like a little creature hiding behind a person that basically wants to eat uh, more content. Um, when they talk about uh, the old school uh, sort of social media and how the AI is the rest of the monster behind that, that is way bigger and it's got way more tentacles going into every aspect of society and what they're trying to prevent at least they're arguing for is this entanglement uh and the, so that the ugly side of ai um doesn't sort of like weave its way inexorably inside of our lives um to where some of those um now seemingly unavoidable um aspects negative aspects of social media can get uh, sort of prevented or nipped in the bud without them getting too far out of hand um this is going to be tough. This is going to be really tough to do. Because even if you see it coming, and even if you even if you know that that's probably going to be a thing, um, I, I would submit that it's not possible despite our best efforts because it fundamentally deals with human behavior. And human behavior, behavior in my opinion, either has to be 100% free, so think... First Amendment, Second Amendment, so on and so forth. Or it has to be totalitarian, <laughs> which think North Korea, China. The, the moment that you start to try to put guardrails on certain behavior that is not um, directly prosecutable, or otherwise in violations of security or treaty laws or things like that. Um, now you start to encroach on freedom of not just expression or freedom of, 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 of say, speech, but it's also almost freedom of thought, right? Um, and that becomes a really, really slippery slope because you can have the best freaking consortium on the planet that is free and, uh, from from bias, free from political ties, free from lobbying, so on and so forth. You can have the best intentions on the planet and you're still probably going to get it wrong. Or at the very least, it's going to be really hard to police each and every infraction that occurs out there without implementing some kind of an AI. And we all know how that works. Not super great all the time on places like Facebook and Twitter. So at the point of which there's an infraction for every one out of every two human beings on the planet and you need to employ half the planet just to police the other half of the planet to make sure that AI doesn't go awry. Ah, man, I don't I don't I don't know that that's I just don't see how that's a that's that's a feasible goal. So instead, I kind of tried to look at it and say, perhaps the real fundamental question, I hate to say it, but what is acceptable loss in terms of relative freedom, right? Acceptable laws. Um, to tie it back to something that's a little more tangible, a classic example in freedom of speech is if I say that people can say whatever the heck they want, that means that they can also say some very hateful and mean things, and even to my face, and I have to support that right in you to do so. I have to support the right for other people to have opinions, even incorrect ones, even even uh, demonstrably false ones, I have to support that if I want to also support 
the freedom to stand up to things like tyranny or to defend things that are wrong um, just because the majority says that it is wrong at the time. And it doesn't seem like, based off of my research, people care whether or not an AI even really knows that it's saying something negative. Some people just don't want certain phrases or words to come out of a machine, even if there's zero intent behind it. So I have I have a feeling that uh, companies like OpenAI are going to further acquiesce to a lot of fine-tuning of uh, less popular positions on certain topics or things that the current society to, uh, deems to be taboo, off-limits, um, and that's going to get to another aspect of the arms race that I would submit for consideration, which is you're going to have an infinite number of AIs out there that are going to be at varying degrees of, of information freedom. And at first it won't seem like that because at first only the biggest corporations will be the ones that can, um, that can even create or leverage these things. But the moment that they start to uh, cloud instance these things and you two can rent your own AI and train it privately or it becomes open source and somebody creates an open source consortium for a trainable AI, that's when that infinite runaway model or kaleidoscope of echo chambers and, and propaganda bots is all going to, it's all just going to be out there. And um, I'm afraid that it's going to be so prolific and so indistinguishable that it's going to end up hurting our own real life freedoms for things like freedom of speech. Just because it's going to be too difficult to A, police, and B, discern between bad stuff that we don't want to hear that human beings are saying and bad stuff that AI is sort of artificially farming and trolling the entire internet with. Um, next topic. Uh, they kind of get into this this concept of uh, Gollum class AIs, which is actually a really clever um, acronym. Uh, generative large language multimodal models. Uh, multimodal, of course, uh, being what we talked about before, which is the fact that it can span chat and audio and visual and make videos and see pictures and all that other stuff. Um, they also kind of talk about this convergence of technology where back in the day when people were training AI models, they were training them in sort of isolated uh, vacuums, right? They're going to try to train a model that predicts a stock market. Somebody else is trying to train a model that can self-drive a car. And another one is playing, uh, training an AI model to play Pong. Everybody's sort of working and converging towards the same set of problems, and um, this is creating sort of an exponential runaway of as far as what's possible because you have more people working in the same lane. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing that they talk about in in uh, in this thing is this idea that the golems are like silently teaching themselves um, uh, skills, uh, you know, research grade technologies like the. You know, the chemistry bot that's teaching itself chemistry and all this other stuff is, um, this kind of goes back to this whole idea that we have to keep reminding ourselves that it it's not teaching itself a damn thing. It is, um, like the chemistry example, it's not actually teaching itself chemistry. It's just the fact that chemistry happens to follow a set of rules and logic and almost language, right? If anybody that's ever taken a, a chemistry class, when you write out these formulas, there's a certain nomenclature that even goes with it. There's a certain way that you write things out. There's, there's an order of operations. It's all things that are super, super similar to exactly how a language works. 
And so naturally, of course, it's going to flow. That's something that's really good at autocomplete for words is going to be really good at autocomplete for chemistry. And I think the only difference between a chemistry researcher and that has to constantly kind of cross-reference more complex things in an AI is that the AI can just hold more of that um, in the forefront um, and therefore be a little more precise and flawless in the way that it does it. Um, I like this analogy that they drew with, uh, they brought up um, AlphaGo, which is that AI program that sort of taught itself Go by playing uh, billions of games of this very complicated game that has got some exponential number of more possible moves than even a chess game. And within a very short amount of time, I was able to beat the best Go players on Earth, um, thus showing us the next level of, of logic and computational power that's available to us in AI. And um, I think it was Aza, but he kind of gave this analogy of if, if, if that was an AI that was trained on the, uh, on the concept of how do I beat somebody at Go, then imagine Alpha Persuade or Alpha Flirt um, this AI that on a language basis is going to play out a thousand different conversations and a thousand different pickup lines against a simulation of you. And now it's going to be coming at you with the absolute best sales pitch for buying a new car or believing in a particular political candidate or making you believe that you should spend fourteen ninety nine a month on a virtual girlfriend. Right, it's going to be really, really good at doing it, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have that in their pocket, and they're going to a hundred percent leverage that. They're a hundred percent a person that really wants to get with somebody on Facebook that right now kind of has to go through the extra steps of looking at their history feed and seeing what they're into, and oh, you know, this person's got dogs, and they seem to like their family, and then asking about them, asking about them later, right? All of that borderline stalker shit. Um, that people don't realize we do to each other, uh, guarantee you there's going to be a profiling AI out there that's going to do that automatically, and it's just going to give you the cliff notes. All right, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna know a person super well, and you're gonna get the the the, the perfect dialogue options to cheat code your way through that conversation with the human being. Um, sounds terrifying. Yes, can you protect yourself against it? Absolutely, because I think with a lot of these things where people are going to go for the low-hanging fruit of just having the AI tell them what the right answer is and then regurgitate it, that falls apart the longer you spend with the person that's bullshitting. Just like it does in real life. Anybody that's bullshitting because they read a popular mechanics article or listened to, to, to the latest um, episode of NPR, you know when people are sort of like spouting out talking points versus when they've actually given something true deep thought um, and have original perspectives on things or has certainly have at least considered a bunch of different sources and there's a lot of sort of influences working into it. So what does that mean for the potential of getting catfished or deep faked by an AI that's trying to that's really good at persuading me, right? It's going to know everything about me. It's going to know all my hobbies, so on and so forth. Well, that just means I have to spend a little more time interrogating it. It just means that I have to uh, do a little bit better at sentiment analysis as to whether or not this person or AI really actually cares about me specifically or if they're just trying to tell me what they want to hear. And certainly, with, as with most things go, why would anybody be wasting their energy on you 
if they don't want to have one of two extremes, A, they actually want to get to know you and they really actually do want to be uh, a friend of yours or a relationship or something like that in your life or they're about to ask you for something that they want, right? Uh, so, you know, my initial, I guess, protocol or SOP for this stuff is if it seems like I'm getting scammed, scammed, or if it seems like I'm getting persuaded or catfished or, or having smoke blown up my ass, I'm just, I'm just going to let it keep talking. I'm going to keep asking the questions about what it thinks it knows about me. And the moment that I can tell that there's, um, some, some stuff about it that is absolutely not correct or that there's only a superficial or topical understanding of it, then I'll be able to call it out for what it is and move on with my life. So again, it kind of goes back to what I keep saying from the top, which is it's going to take a little more effort. It's going to take a little more care, but it's doable. It's going to be doable. The final thing that was interesting in the in the talk, in this section of the talk at least, was this idea of emerging capabilities, uh, which implies that there's a certain critical mass in computational power that sort of unlocks new levels. And they gave a couple of examples of how, uh, for a number of years, even though these AI models were out there and capable of doing things, uh, they might be able to do like autocomplete level stuff, but they really weren't good at math until the language part got to a certain critical mass and then they could do math complex math up to a certain point but they really couldn't do anything else like image recognition or or things like this until it got to a certain critical mass um i find that to be pretty fascinating because i i i get the intuitive sense that is a lot of how the human experience kind of works at different levels much like you can have an entire ocean of water, but it isn't until you get to a certain temperature that that ocean turns into ice, right? Or it isn't until you get to that certain temperature that that water turns into steam. I think what we're going to find, especially when it comes to language and information and chaining ideas together and chaining thoughts together, we're probably going to unlock that whole little pesky consciousness thing as an emergent technology as soon as you get to a certain critical mass and i would say it's a certain critical mass specific to language i i tend to agree with tristan and and aza and when they talk about the idea that language is super fundamental to the human existence i would actually take it a step further and we'll get into this that it's actually mathematics and physics behind that because of the way that uh, these models work but we'll get into that later but let's just say that yes the human existence is so shaped by language that you have to wonder how long communicating with each other in less primitive ways with the minds of five-year-olds and not really making a whole lot of headway until our brains were able to get to where we can communicate at the level of a teenager or the level of a college student. And then that explosion in, in, in thoughts and philosophy and everything else that came with it in the very, very olden days um, I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to find that there's aspects of consciousness that emerge 
as soon as you get to a certain breaking points and maybe in the ai world that's some number magic number of token threshold that's you know double triple quadruple what gpt4 is now or it's going to be along the realms of this sort of like infallible probability matrix that then takes it a step further and starts to develop its own sort of personality right because we certain we certainly see at least the degradation of this in human beings as we are afflicted with different brain injuries, Alzheimer's, getting old in general, uh, developmental phases between youth and adult. Um, we see that our own brains, even though they're all technically wired the same, can behave at vastly different levels of consciousness. So to me, that tells me that our brains are just wet works. Uh, wet work modules of the same kinds of concepts and i think that that is both sad in the sense that it kind of takes more of the smoke and mirrors and magic out of out of being conscious or being alive but what it also does is it kind of gives me hope in the sense that that means that you could probably <laughs> actually elevate to higher states of consciousness if you push it the other direction right Certainly, if you take away, you can devolve into vegetative states, but perhaps this is what the, the gurus and the monks have, have figured out for themselves over, over millennia, is that there's higher states of consciousness that are out there, as long as you can fine-tune your, your brain into existing in those planes. So that kind of gives me hope, and I really hope that the more that we learn about how we can push the limits of cognitive function in AI, that that serves as a simulation and a model for how we can kind of do the same thing for ourselves. And with that, I think we'll call this episode here. Um, uh, thanks for listening. I am, I am deeply humbled and thrilled that there's a lot of people out there thinking about this problem, uh, thinking about AI in general, and thinking about how <laughs> interesting the future is going to get. And you don't have to be an expert in this field to have conversations with the people around you and ask them how they feel about this stuff. And, and all I would encourage everybody to do is have a more human conversation about it. Um, not to sound ironic. Have a human conversation about um, what this means for you, what this means for your family, what this means for your job even because I don't think that the answer to this is that you're going to be able to just treat it like the early days of the cell phone and say uh it's too much technology for me or this isn't going to affect me guarantee bet that this is going to affect you in some kind of a way the best if not the only thing that any of us can do is we can decide how it affects us and what I would hope that by going through these thought experiments, um, by talking about it with other people, by having an open discussion, um, we can train ourselves to sort of be more resilient human beings so that when it hits us from outside sources, aka government organizations or companies that are pressing this stuff upon us, even if we don't have as much power as we would like to in influencing them, um, I really think that we, that we can create resilient minds that are capable of at least withstanding or seeing the negative aspects of it for what it is while simultaneously enjoying the benefits for where it helps us and enriches our lives. And I think I, I, I have an optimistic view of that. I really think that 
if enough people within a community can <laughs> support each other and help each other navigate these murky waters, that we can get to a future where um, we're going to see the same spectru- spectrum of involvement that we do with pretty much every revolutionary technology that hit us today.